Oh, hey, how are you? It's your trusty host, Angelique Carson here. I'm finally back in D.C. after three long, long months in Maine. I love Maine so very much, but I don't recommend moving back into your childhood home for more than a week. You know what I mean? I went home for so long because the street dog I adopted from Puerto Rico, love of my life, and I've probably told you this before because I'm obsessed, but he got himself a solid case of heartworm, which means he wasn't allowed to get his heart rate up for three months. Like no walkies, no playdates with his bud buds, just laying down. And it was brutal because this kid lives to see his friends. So I needed my mom's big old creaky house full of people and animals to help me love up on him for the duration instead of him staring at me, staring at my laptop 14 hours a day. Mom guilt is real. Anyway, now I'm back. I already had the chance to go hang out with some privacy peeps here in D.C. Terra True, my company, holds these really cool dinners at some of the best restaurants around the country. Side note, let me know if you ever want an invite. So we went to Centralina here in D.C.'s Chinatown, and the food was insanely good. I'm talking amazing gnocchi. By the way, am I even saying that word correctly? I hear people say it differently every time I order it. It makes me wildly self-conscious when I try to order it, so I usually just don't order it. Gnocchi? Gnocchi? Gnocchi. Anyway, the service at that place was unparalleled, so you should head there if you're ever in D.C. Let's talk about the latest privacy news, and then we'll get on to the episode. See Money Burns? Trusty sound engineer? Let's set a three-minute timer so I get this done quick. Since we last spoke, the FTC had its first meeting on its efforts to create rules around commercial surveillance. I thought at that session the advocacy panel that the FTC assembled was really solid. I've never heard so much focus on the most vulnerable populations among us when it comes to data privacy harms. But the number of times the speakers brought that up, um, you know, the way that algorithmic discrimination and secondary uses of data can disproportionately impact Black, Brown, LGBTQ+, and female users in ways that systematically perpetuate racism or sexism was really impressive. I have to imagine that FTC Commissioner Alvaro Bedoya had something to do with speaker selection and topics because that's exactly his wheelhouse following his work at Georgetown Law's Center on Privacy and Technology. Also, at this session, and I missed this part because I had logged off, it was like this the FTC hearing was hours and hours and hours long. But I guess at the end of it, when they did public comment, one privacy attorney got on uh, the Zoom. And before they started to play her out, you know, the Oscars wrap it up music, she just yelled, I hate data brokers, and then logged off. I'm sorry I missed that. Just for the comedy of it. What a time to be alive. Next, the FTC recently released a staff report on dark patterns. Really hot topic these days. We're starting to see the phrase dark patterns repeated in legislative proposals, including in California's new Age Appropriate Design Code Act and in the federal proposal, ADPPA. If you're new to the phrase, dark patterns are sometimes referred to as manipulative design, and uh, the phrase refers to when sites and services nudge users to make opt-in decisions or even prevent folks from opting out. For example, if you go to a site and a cookie banner pops up and your choices on accepting the cookies or not are, one, yes, I love great content, or no, I want to sound stupid, or even less egregious examples like if a site has an accept button in bright green and then the deny button is in this muted gray. Those are the kinds of design choices aimed at nudging users towards making a decision that would be favorable to the site or service, and the FTC aims to crack down on those. So check out the report. It outlines some examples of what not to do and also some ways to discuss with your marketing and design teams how to draw the line between manipulative and fair design. You probably saw by now that Uber has had another high-profile security breach. Information Week reports that hacking group Lapsus purchased credentials from the dark web and used them to attack the site's multi-factor authentication system. 
Basically, the attack repeatedly attempted to log in using credentials, prompting an Uber contractor to respond to a two-factor authentication request. Eventually, the contractor responded to whom they thought was an Uber IT request, and the hacker was able to gain elevated access to several tools within Uber's network, end quote. Okay, that's the news. That's the most important stuff. Let's talk a little bit, you and me as friends. The most recent potty, uh, two weeks ago, featured law professor Eric Goldman from the Santa Clara University Law School. And some of you did not like that. Let's go back for a minute here. When the California Age-Appropriate Design Code Act passed through California's Assembly and Senate effortlessly, and it was clear it was going to become law, my reaction was, this is huge. It came out of nowhere. And as my guest on today's show says, its backers ran an understated campaign. So I felt like no one really knew about it. And I said, why aren't we talking about this? It seems like it could really impose some sweeping changes. After all, it applies to anyone under 17. So COPPA's age 13 goes out the window. And it applies to not just sites directed at children, but any site or service with users under 17 who routinely visit the site or service. It's going to have a profound impact on publishers relying on third-party cookies. It's got some very heavy DPIA mandates. And the penalties for misbehavior could potentially be very steep. So I looked around for who was really talking about this and the potential implications, and the loudest critic was Eric Goldman. Now, many of you felt Goldman's take was wrong, and that's fair. I do hope it's clear, though, that when I have guests on, they're always going to give you their take on the issue, and then you get to decide whether it feels right or fair to you. But I also care a whole lot about you and what you want out of the show and who you want to hear from and what you think generally. I always tell you to give me feedback, good or bad, and I mean that. Now, some of you were nicer than others in sending notes, and I want to say a special thank you to Jasmine and Nick in particular for your thoughtful responses. We can talk about Joe Jerome after. Anyway, what you asked for was a second take on this children's code, and so I made sure that that happened. I will tell you that I tried to get the Laws Campaigners, a UK advocacy group called Five Rights, which also backed the UK children's code, to come on the show. And at first they were interested and said yes, but they canceled last minute. By that point, Newsom had signed the bill into law, so maybe they were over-campaigning about it. It was already a thing. But I did ask Dr. Jen King, a privacy and data policy fellow at Stanford University, to come talk about the bill's merits for you. She just published a piece called, quote, a bill designed to protect kids could change the internet for the better, end quote. I will tell you that while Jen was kind and willing, it also wasn't really a good time for her. She was A, sick, and B, had some very loud construction going on at her house. But I told her that y'all had pitchforks and I was about to go into witness protection. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And that I really wanted us to do this. Luckily, the workers at Jen's house take a lunch break from noon to one Pacific. So we snuck in a recording then. I think only once will you hear what I think Jen called a ground hall. I don't know. Is that a thing? Ground hall. Anyway, to give you a sense of how Jen feels about this issue, here's what she concludes at the end of the article I mentioned, which is very good and you should read. Quote, in sum, critics might be right that the Cal ADDC, this code, could upend the internet status quo that we rely on today. It just may do so in ways they don't like, not because the bill's changes are bad policy, but because they attempt to prioritize both privacy and well-being for all users. We've had nearly 30 years of design masquerading as being values agnostic driving the development of the internet. Do we really want to defend this status quo? Is this the online world we not only want for children, but for all of us? Should Governor Newsom sign the Cal AADC into law, which I guess is what we're calling this, a new era will begin, end quote. So here's a conversation with Jen on her take on the bill, and I specifically asked her to respond to some of Goldman's main critiques. Thanks for writing me and telling me what you think and what you need. 
and I hope you enjoy this episode. Oh, before I go, I'll be in Austin next month. If you want to catch up, shoot me a note. My team will be there. We're hosting a happy hour that Wednesday night, October 12th. It's going to be lit. Let me know if you want an invite so we can hang. Love you, as always. Talk soon. Um, we know now when you had written the article, the governor hadn't signed it yet. We know now the governor has. Um, and so, you know, you had called it, uh, in your article, one of the more significant pieces of internet legislation that you've likely not heard of as the legislation's backers have run an understated campaign. And that was part of what I thought was really interesting was that it sort of seemed to sneak up on people. Um, do you have any, um, idea of like, why was it an under, why didn't people know about it? Why was it an understated campaign? Like, was that intentional or that's just sort of how it went? That is such a good question. Um, and I don't know the, you know, the absolute answer. I mean, so I was already familiar with the UK children's code or the code as they call it. Um, so it was actually a surprise to me that the bill was being, um, proposed, so I, I did not know it was coming. Uh, I didn't have any kind of advanced contact with any of those groups. And ironically, Buffy Wicks is my assembly member. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I was a little bit like, why didn't you talk to me? Um, since yeah. I live, she's one, yeah, I live in her district. Um, so I was surprised to see it. And, uh, you know, I didn't know um, most of those groups, uh, or I don't, a, a few of them. Like I'm very familiar with Common Sense Media, for example. Um, but Accountable Tech, um, you know, the the UK folks who were also supporting the bill. Uh, yeah, I don't know why it didn't get more uptake. I think maybe in part because it's a little bit of a complicated issue. It's not one of those easy things, I think, for a lot of people to grasp. And it may be that it just didn't kind of pique uh, interest or show up on people's radar because I think that unless you really dug into it, maybe wasn't clear exactly, you know, how much it could potentially transform, you know, depending on how it's enacted. Right. Okay. Uh, fair enough. All right. So let's talk about the bill, um, itself a bit. Um, you know, one of the big deals to me, uh, as I'm reading this is that, you know, it does cast such a a broad net, as you know, in your piece. Um, it's not just sites that are specifically aimed at children, but sites that are uh, or services that are likely to be accessed by children. Um, so as you note in your piece, you say that, you know, detractors suggest that the bill will do no less than blow up the internet, which is not hyperbole. That is what the detractors are saying. Right. Um, most significantly by requiring websites to implement age verification or gating mechanisms that could make it far more difficult to use online products and services, invade privacy through identity identity verification services that require personal data, and disproportionately impact small to medium-sized businesses. So that's a lot. But what's your take on that, on those, on those sort of critiques? Right. So, I mean, I think the, the first thing was I actually talked to the UK ICO folks who work on the bill or work on the code. Um, as well as uh, a, a good friend who lives in the UK to get a sense of whether this was hyperbole. <laughs> as the internet stopped working in the UK. My yeah. sense was that we would have heard if it had, um, and I hadn't heard anything. You know, so that was kind of where I started, was you know, knowing, again, that the code had been in effect for at least some time, and just this sense of, like, I haven't heard that level of controversy coming, from us from, coming to us from across the Atlantic. 
So part of it was the reality check of like, what does this really look like on the ground? And that's, that's kind of where I centered my, my take. Um, Of course, you know, in the kind of regulatory translation phase, I suppose things could potentially go awry. And I think that's where some people have been reasonably concerned about how the bill is actually interpreted uh, into law in California. So, you know, it, it could be potentially, I think, hijacked and made really extreme. But my sense is that that's not what, that was not the intent that's not how we've seen it implemented in the UK. Um, and it wasn't intended to kind of put up fences around every website, you know, on the internet, or at least those accessible by those of us in California. Um, you know, and I think the, the biggest kind of clue there was the focus on, I, I would call it a safe harbor, essentially, you know, that if you implement some some version of what we're proposing for children, for adults, like we'll give you the free pass. You don't necessarily have to try to discriminate against different, uh, different aged users. And so, you know, that's where I think it has its real power in trying to kind of lift, um, I started talking hyperbole or um, trite phrases, but to lift all boats <laughs> uh-huh. um, or lift the now, standards, I guess. Just to, just to uh, touch on a couple of points that you made, and this is me being on like earnestly mm-hmm. and honestly curious. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the UK, um, you know, and that things haven't been wildly detrimental since the code was implemented, I've, I wonder because the code isn't law, like, do we have a sense of, like, I don't even know how many people are adhering to that code. And, and so like, do we even know that like there has been mass adoption of that and therefore we can say, well, there is mass adoption and it didn't break things, um, that's question number one. And then question number two, based on what you said is, you know, it won't it be very hard and in some ways detrimental. And I know like, you know, we care about the kids. And so we should, we should definitely do things that to protect them, even if it's hard for companies like, you know, being hard for companies shouldn't be the make or break on whether we pass laws. But if we're saying, okay, there's a safe Harbor, just treat everyone the same. Won't that, sort of be very, very difficult for sites that rely on data? Those two questions. Right. Okay. So the first one. Um, So talking to the ICO's office, um, you know, this first year, I think they are still in the process of developing guidelines, for example. Uh, They have people who are working um, in a design capacity to produce advice for companies as to how to actually kind of design for the um, wide range of ages that the code encompasses, you know, and I think some of those details are some of the more interesting ones, challenging ones, and could be really truthfully very difficult to um, design for, you know, such as you're going to have to try to explain to a user under five, <laughs> you know, what these settings mean, for example. I, I suspect that's a bit of a negative incentive, meaning if you don't want to have to try to do that, then then just don't use that functionality or don't collect that data, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but of course, some some companies will be obliged to try, and I think that's where the ICO is trying to provide more guidance on how to design for that that breadth of age. Not being in the UK, not having visited the UK, I don't have the on-the-ground, on the boots, boots-on-the-ground experience. Um, when you talk to them and you see what they've been publicizing, because since... The September 1st, I believe, was the one-year anniversary. Uh, They've been highlighting kind of their accomplishments with the code. And so, you know, it's notable that most of the targets they are focusing on publicly are, you know, Facebook, Instagram, um, and so on. 
Google, YouTube, um, you know, so obviously looking at platforms at scale and the mm. changes that will affect the most users. Yep. Um, I don't know how much kind of regulatory force they put into um, enforcing the code. Mm-hmm. So, you know, unfortunately, without going to them, I think it's, it, that's a difficult question for me to answer offhand. Um, Fair but enough. Having had talked to them, you know, they've they were clear that, again, they, they have a kind of list of things they're trumpeting as accomplishments. They've said that they've contacted companies and, you know, kind of nudged folks into compliance in non-public ways, mm-hmm. um, you know, without bringing enforcement actions. And so, um, again, though, I think if you look at how it's being enforced, it's mostly very large actors at this point. I don't know if the intent is to trickle downward into smaller actors. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, I just I don't know. Saying to companies, well, all you, you know, we'll just treat all users the same by default. To me, that sounds like something that companies would like rage against because, you know, you do have to create all of these special uh, restrictions in terms of what you can do with data when it's children. And obviously, you know, the internet runs on data and uh, we have this, you know, data based ecosystem that the ad tech you know, industry will tell you we'll we'll break everything if it goes away, as we saw when we tried to, you know, with the phase out of third party cookies. So is that something that you can see companies swallowing as something that they're willing to do that seems fair? Just treat everyone as children as the default and then you'll be okay. Right. Um well I don't suspect a lot of people will be happy about it. <laughs> to be very clear. Um I think that is going to be probably the area of the greatest resistance. Um I don't know if this bill is the thing that will kind of break ad tech, uh, because I feel like ad tech's under attack from a lot of different quarters. Um, if ADPA passes, um, you know, that's kind of a whole different flank of the battle, if you want to think about it that way. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I think, well, from my perspective, I think the writing is on the wall for ad tech, that the status quo is just not going to hold. Change is afoot. And whether it's this bill or ADPA or something else, um, that kind of shifts the balance of data collection, then it's, it, you know, it's most likely going to change. So, um, you know, I, yes, I think it'll be a big sticking point. I'm not deeply sympathetic to it. <laughs> That's part of me because I'm a privacy researcher, but also because right. again, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of the resistance has just been doubling down on the status quo. And I just come back to this sense of, I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of us agree that the status quo isn't working for mm-hmm. a lot of people. And so, you know, this, I think what I find really interesting about this bill overall is that from my perspective, it's a really blatant attempt to put values into design, um, mm-hmm. which is a, you know, topic in the academic community that we love to go on and on about values and design. Um, you know, wouldn't it all be better if we put values in design? Well, here we go. We're putting values into design here. Some very explicit values. Um, and it's just been interesting to see some of the resistance to, even among people who I think would normally support kind of value-driven design, go, ah, wait a second, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. So, but again, like, I think it, it's hard to defend the status quo. Things are changing. You know, this was one way into kind of forcing change. Things are going to break in some way. Not everybody's going to be happy but I think ad tech in particular, yes, it probably is a very negative experience. I mean, I raised this in my article too. You know, does this mean like my local, my local um, news site, Berkeley side, like does that put them out of business? Does it put the San Francisco Chronicle out of business? Um, I again, I'm skeptical because I get it. You know, I think part of this will then hinge on 
what proportion of children are visiting these sites. You know, these are not mm-hmm. sites that are directed to children. Um, you know, is my teenager reading Berkeley side? He might be. How many teenagers <laughs> need to read Berkeley side in order for them to comply? Right. We don't know right now, but if it's, you know, fewer than 1% of your readership, does that mean you have to verify age or, you know, kind of change your business practices? Yes. I mean, this is all, I think, probably muddier than most privacy lawyers would probably like. Um, so I'm empathetic to that. But yeah. um, at the end of the day, I think, again, like the status quo is changing. And some of this, I don't think, will necessarily uh, torpedo all of these different models and all these different sites, but it's certainly going to force some change and it will be uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think that's fair. And as someone who, you know, I, I hope a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast are working at companies and, you know, do want to do the right thing, do want to comply and are listening for ways to improve privacy practices. And so I don't want to like come across as like, oh, companies don't, you know, companies are evil and, you know, at, you know, but I do tend to come at things from the little guy side, just like by virtue of my background, like <laughs> we were always kind of the little guys. And so I do kind of tend to come at it as like, there is a power imbalance and we do need to correct that. Right. But I think what struck me about this is that, is that people weren't freaking out. Like if this is going to change the status quo, not that that's bad, but like, why aren't we, why aren't we reacting in the way, you know, and I think people are catching on to this now, but it just struck me that people, again, because it was understated campaign and we were all probably focused on, you know, the ADPPA and blah, blah, blah. Um, it just sort of seemed like the sleeper issue that to me was going to have broader implications than we were necessarily understanding when all of a sudden it passed through the California, you know, assembly and Senate. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, um, what do you think about the argument that, you know, if we do have to do this age verification, we're going to have to collect even more data about the users than we were to begin with. And and that's problematic in itself. Right. Um, so I'm not entirely convinced, only because I think it's very reactive. And it again, it just assumes the status quo. It assumes, uh-oh, like no one's going to want to comply. So we're going to have to make this really arduous. Um I think it was um, Mike Masnick that was making the argument that, wow, there's only one age verification service in existence, and it's run by, I can't remember the name of the porn company, apologize, <laughs> as a Think Geek. Um, it's not Think Geek, edit that out. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, kind of pointing out the potential irony in a world where if you if you have to use an age verification service, there's really only one game potentially in town in the U.S. right now. Um I'm not sure that's really what's going to have to happen. Again, I think it depends on just how strictly those age requirements are interpreted. And I, I think that, um, you know, Masnick and Eric Goldman have interpreted them on the more kind of extreme end of mm-hmm. like, this is what happens if the law is, I would say, very inflexible. Mm-hmm. Um it's one of the things I mentioned in my article that was suggested to me. Uh, I don't want to take credit for the idea because I did not originate it. Um, is that there's you know, a lot of teens and younger kids are accessing online services and apps through their own devices, and that there is potentially a way to delegate age verification at the device level rather at the site level. Um, so this mm. might be something where we see um, device makers step up in the parental controls field um, to try to enact uh, those age-gating features without having to go to these kind of external vendors to do so. So 
that's, I thought, I thought that was a really interesting alternative. Um, you know, as a parent, I will say, you know, that comports with my experience. Like my kids aren't using, they're using, if they're using any devices, they're, you know, issued to them by the school, which, you know, presumably would be another place where, uh, you can um, have that level of verification, um, or they have, you know, their own iPads or own phones. And so, you know, in that world, I think it does seem like you could potentially delegate a lot of this to devices, um, rather than, again, having to put the burden on individual sites necessarily to have to do that verification on their own. Fair enough. Um, I have one more uh two more questions on sort of the critiques of the bill, and then I want to dive into more about the merits. But Mm -hmm. um, uh, one one critique that Goldman made on my podcast uh, recently was that, you know, he's sort of an open internet guy. um, And, you know, one of the criticisms I received, uh, you know, with having him on was like, well, he doesn't want laws in general. And so so why would you have someone on uh, to critique a law who just outright doesn't want regulation? But what he said was that, you know, companies are going to try and circumvent these requirements and they're just going to start banning kids from sites in general to make it easier for them, which creates less open Internet for kids. Do you think that's a valid concern or no? Again, I guess if to me, I guess it just shows a little bit of lack of creativity here. I mean, again, if you are assuming like the status quo stands and that no one's going to be willing to change and again, that you can't come up with something more innovative, like, wow, let's delegate this to, you know, to devices rather than um, forcing every single site in the world to age verify then potentially. But um, I, again, I think it's just, it, it's not a more creative solution to this problem. And um, I guess it does, I mean, as a parent, I'm trying to think through. I mean, there are already sites I try to ban, like a lot of us use filtering software uh, because there is a lot of garbage out there that you don't want your kids to have access to. But Mm -hmm. um, I mean, fundamentally, I was looking at this bill as less of a content driven bill, which, you know, which I think is what makes it interesting because so much of this regulatory space is about limiting content. And obviously we have some really controversial issues right now around, um, censorship, you know, not even just of the internet, but just literal books and libraries and schools that, you know, raise all sorts of, um, you know, hard First Amendment issues. But um, I mean, I think it just, it's a very narrow way of looking at this. And to me, it's just, it's reactive um, Mm -hmm. in the sense of like, instead of trying to understand some of the motivating concerns, which again, I weren't necessarily fundamentally about banning content. It was much more about practices, you know, data collection practices, um, and also not just data collection practices. You know, we haven't talked about this yet, but, you know, there's a lot of concerns packed into that bill around health and well-being um, mm-hmm. that, again, I think are really valid issues um, that this bill is trying to address. And, again, to just kind of slough it off as another a, another attempt to attack content, I think, kind of misses that larger discussion that's been, and from my perspective, kind of growing in importance, and a lot more people have been participating in this question of, you know, our devices, our systems, our sites being run in our best interest, not just from a data collection perspective, but also from kind of our personal health and well-being. Yeah, I mean, I don't have children. Um, no one wants that, I think. But <laughs> but if I did, I mean, I hear from a lot, all of my friends are parents, and most of them have small kids, but some of them with the kids who are more like the middle school, certainly high school age, 
they they tell me all the time, like, and they're sort of just aghast or like they sort of remark on it just like it's this phenomenon. And maybe because don't work in privacy aren't as aware of like how harmful it could be. But they say like they get on, you know, these services, you know, uh, Instagram, TikTok, et cetera. And they just go into this black hole and they'll just be on the couch, like in this zombie like state. And they're just completely down this deep, dark hole. Like they're almost unreachable. Um, and so I do think like it makes sense that we're trying to figure out now that we realize that this could be a problem with how do we handle addictive services? And this code does seem to want to, uh, address some of that. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And this, again, it's not a, this is, it, this was not motivated by the moral panic kind of content world, which again, these things traditionally have come from that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am, you know, I'm a pretty liberal parent. <laughs> I suspect on content matters, I probably agree with uh, the critics uh, far more than I would disagree with them. But yeah, parenting right now uh, with the internet is a real adventure. Um, and it's I not bet. again that it's, I think, this wasn't motivated by let's shut down, you know, you know, entire sectors of the internet um, and put them off access. Although certainly some people would like to do that. I don't want to you know, pretend that they don't. Um, but I think this arises from precisely what you just described, uh, which as a parent, as someone who is, you know, internet savvy, who has a technical degree, you know, it is a struggle um, to parent a teenager right now. Uh, if you have them have any access to online services, like it is a part-time parenting is already a part to full-time job, but then that's another part-time job on top of it. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, my heart goes out to the people who aren't tech savvy at all. Like, geez, um, mm-hmm. it's mind blowing. So there's, yeah, I mean, I think you're hearing a lot of people's, um, you know, firsthand experiences that there is a real problem here. And even though adults may not want to admit it, there's also potentially a real problem there for all of us. Um, one of my Stanford colleagues, uh, Anna Lemke, who is a MD and has written a, a great book, recent book uh, called Dopamine Nation. It isn't specifically about um, kind of the the addictive capacity of technology. It's broader than that, but she does address that and you know, raises some of the issues that she has as a practitioner um, with people coming in with technology addi- addictions. You know, it's a real thing. Um, and there are lots of very addictive things in society that we have decided to regulate um, and, you know, either put off limits for children, but also make it scarcer for adults. And so, I mean, I think you're just hearing the um, people's frustration with this space. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why I think you saw those types of provisions kind of piggybacked in on what is otherwise more or less, I would call a kind of a privacy by design bill. Mm -hmm. And I want to touch on that too. But just before we move on, I wanted to say that um, two sort of anecdotes, because I always think it's really helpful to hear things from like the real world, which is why I mentioned the example of of my my friends trying to raise kids and having them feel like they're just like, you know, zombies looking at this, at the, these screens and going down these black holes, but also, and I won't mention names because I didn't ask permission if I could share this, but I think anonymously, it's probably fine. I was chatting with someone recently who's a college professor and he was saying that, um, you know, he's always had students that exhibited signs of self-harm, but they were really hard to find. Like they would, people who were cutting themselves and, you know, 
not to be flip about this, but to describe it quickly, like people who were cutting themselves would wear long sleeves, for example. And now there are some of these like virtual challenges or even trends where he's seeing students come in with just open cuts up and down their arms. Like it's almost like they want people to see, like it's a badge of honor or something, or um, it's become trendy in some way to self-harm. And that was a real concern for him. And the other real life example that I heard recently was during the FTC's recent uh, public comment, uh, um, I won't call it a hearing, but a, a webinar, I guess, on its rulemaking efforts, um, one woman had testified or shared that she knows personally of a girl who had to go to a site and ask for it to delete its algorithm on her because it kept on showing her ads that triggered her eating disorder. Right. Um, And I thought that was really compelling. Like it gives me goosebumps actually just repeating it Um, because, you know, we do have to look at like these aren't just academic issues. They are like these are things that are happening in the wild now in real time. Right. And so, you know, it does seem appropriate that whether you agree with this code or not, like the time is now to act and do something to to help our children, really. Right. And, you know, Danielle Citron, I think more than anybody has well-documented these issues, you know, mm-hmm. in particular, um, the the gender-based issues. Um, I myself started my career on the internet early on in kind of early trust and safety work and regulating, building tools to detect CSAM. So I've seen, you know, that really bad underside of the internet firsthand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I used to, to work in it directly. Um, yeah. You know, just to say that a lot of what we see today hasn't changed in 20 mm-hmm. plus years. Like mm-hmm. these problems, many of these problems have been here. So it's not like this is a surprise. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what's, you know, obviously what's different is scale. It's the relationships, you know, the, that social media um, um, build on um, to distribute this type of thing. Whereas in the past, it was much more of a, you had to, you know, seek it out. And I think what's really interesting about this moment and what this code I think potentially enables is this shift that I'm seeing towards us as kind of, I guess I'd I'd say like passive consumers of these algorithms to Mm -hmm. active. And we've already seen examples of this over the last decade of, especially with teens trying to, we call it hacking the algorithm, you know, whether it's like I create two Instagram accounts or, you know, just the different ways that people have tried to kind of take this on, on their own and, modify or adapt like their accounts in order to get the algorithm to give them different content or treat them a certain way. I think what you're beginning to see is a, I guess, maybe an impatience (laughs) with the idea that we have to try to hack hack our way out of these things. Mm -hmm. And more, and I think Francis Haugen's revelations probably also really brought this to a T as well, um, was, is just this idea that instead of having to just put up with whatever these sites have decided or the way they want to deliver content to us or recommendations or whatever, like we need to have more control over that. Of course, mm-hmm. I'm always a little skeptical of that um, route only because coming out of privacy, we know that the world of privacy settings is a <laughs> long trod road of giving people lots of, flip, you know, bits to flip. And do they ever flip them? Do they know about them? Like, will they investigate them? Hard to say, but I do think there's some interesting promise here in a world where instead of just everybody gets the same highly addictive algorithm, you know, you do force companies into giving you options. Um, If you want autoplay, you can have autoplay, but you got to have to actually opt into it rather than it be the default. Mm -hmm. You know, what's 
you know, there's never probably a quote unquote neutral design here, but I think what you're seeing is more of a pushback on realizing that some of the designs we're getting forced on us are potentially harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't harm everyone equally, um, but they do cause people real harm in the real world, um, whether that's emotional harm or, you know, actual physical harm. You know, of course, we can argue that the whole other topic, but um, sure. again, as I think Danielle's work has highlighted like there is a real great, you know, connection between what's happening online and what happens in the real world. And so it's, we're kind of long past the point of denying that. And I guess one of the positive things I would hope would come out of legislation like this is a forcing mechanisms to get companies to stop um, only kind of delivering these things to us in a single way to give mm-hmm. us choice. If mm-hmm. we are, I mean, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these platforms are not optional for many people. So if they're not going to be optional, then, you know, not only are we, do we want more voice in regulating the data they collect about us, but I think we should also have more voice in how they're presenting um, our data and our content to us as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it has always just felt like sort of a lost cause. I mean, even I've been working in this space for, I don't know, 12, 13 years or something now. And the story has just always been like, well, if you don't like the terms of the service, then you just don't use it, which we know like, isn't really fair, right? Like you need to be where, where your people are. For example, we'll just don't use Facebook. Well, for a lot of people, like you're, that's the way you, the only way you really talk to your grandma these days, right? right? Like she's on. Or so if the, you're in college, it's sometimes the only way you get to participate in certain things. Yeah. Like I can't tell you how many college students will say, oh, well, the student association for all the medical students is on Facebook or my dorm is only, you know, I have to be on the Facebook group. And like, that's the only reason I'm on it, but I have to be like, they don't offer right. it any other way. It's just like, if it's always felt like this, this false choice where you just don't have power, you don't know what's happening behind the scenes, you have no agency. And so you just click accept because like, hey, the battle is not worth what, what I'd lose, you know, not being able to access this site if I don't agree to their terms. Um, so I do think it's interesting that this bill starts to sort of shift that, it seems. I want to come back to what you were talking about in terms of privacy by design, because We've been hearing about this for for many, many years, as we know, and as you note in your article in Kabuki and coined the term, but I think putting it into practice has been very difficult for folks. Like it seemed like a very academic idea for a long time. And now we're starting to see that phrase pop up in actual legislation, right? And we're going to start to see regulations that spell out what that means. So do you think that this is the future? Are we going to start to see companies actually and truly doing privacy by design because now the laws are going to mandate that they do in very specific ways? Yeah, I mean, I think the specific Specificity is the thing, right? Um, because I think just saying you need to practice privacy by design, <laughs> it's just right. not enough. It's like, well, how? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, there have been a few settlements that I think have added some more specificity. But, you know, in writing this, I went back to um, went back to the FTC. I think it was the 2012 report where I believe um, I might be misremembering. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's that one where they first mentioned privacy by design. Um, and again, it's very, very generic and very open-ended. Um, and so when, again, when I read the Cal, um, code, um, bill, you know, what really struck me was like, this is very specific privacy by design. Like this is not holding any punches. This is saying, this is exactly how you're going to do it. And this is what you need to do. Uh, and that to me is the kind of huge difference between some of the other, um, Kind of settlements and guidance that we've seen to date, at least here in the U.S. <laughs> 